0: I suppose the first thing that I should do this morning is to acknowledge this remarkably beautiful ofrenda that we have um, at the center of our church this morning. I remember my first fall here when we were approaching Day of the Dead, and I believe it was you, Becky, who reached out to me and said, hey, could we do an ofrenda at the church? And I was like, well, yeah, I don't see why we couldn't do something like that. And then I think you responded like, could we do it on the altar? And I was like, ooh, um, I don't know. I'd been here for about five minutes. So that first year, we did that ofrenda over in Hanson Hall. And then the next year, I don't know if it was you, Becky, or who else came to me. They were like, hey, can we do an ofrenda at St. John's Episcopal Church again for the Day of the Dead? And I was like, yeah. And they were like, can we do it on the altar? And I was like, oh, yeah. These people are cool. Um, they We love stuff like this here. So um, thank you to Haley Deming and to Kirsten Farney and to Carmina Oaks who, and, and to so many others who have spent – Um, So much time making this incredibly beautiful, loving display of those who have gone before us. If I were a megachurch pastor, this would be the moment in the sermon where I would drop the two huge screens and I would signal the people at the back of the church to cue up one of the most beautiful clips in cinematographic history that I've ever seen. What you would see on these screens would be a long hair, thick bearded, dirty, grizzled Robert De Niro trudging through a jungle with a thick rope wrapped around his torso. De Niro would be dragging through the jungle a huge net filled with armor and swords and other weapons as his repentance for sins past. Maybe some of you know the movie that I'm referencing here, The Mission. Has anyone seen The Mission? The Mission is a beautiful film made in 1986 that tells the story of Father Gabriel played by Jeremy Irons, and Rodrigo, played by Robert De Niro. Robert De Niro is a slaver, someone who has made his living capturing the Guarani Indians from the forest, the jungle of South America. He comes home from one expedition to find that his fiancee, his beloved, has fallen in love with his little brother. Scandalized by this betrayal, he challenges his little brother to a duel, and he kills him. Bereft, heartbroken, and enslaved by this horrible act that he's done, he reaches out uh, to Jeremy Irons' character, Father Gabriel. Father Gabriel gives him the penance of dragging these weapons of enslavement, these weapons of war through the jungle in order to pay for his sins, both the sin of killing his brother in the duel and also the sin of enslaving the native peoples of South America. The punishment across The plot of the movie is so harsh that every other member of the expedition, except for Father Gabriel, insists that Rodrigo be released from his penance. But Gabriel holds firm. When the expedition finally reaches the borderlands of the Guarani Indian Territory, and they have their first encounter with those Indians, you remember Gabriel is playing the oboe, that haunting, beautiful music that comes from the movie that actually won them a little bit of hardware uh, at the Oscars that year. The natives smash the oboe, and there's a confrontation. The Indians are puzzled by Rodrigo's struggle. They don't quite understand What's going on? And there's this tense moment on film. One of the natives draws a knife from his waist, moves toward Rodrigo, De Niro's character, and he holds the blade for a moment close to De Niro's throat. We are meant to understand, of viewers of the story, that Rodrigo is recognized recognized as the terrible enslaver of the Guarani people. In a moment, the native does not kill Rodrigo. Rather, he slips his blade underneath the rope, cuts it, and frees De Niro from his burden. The moment is both confusing and beautiful. Beautiful. De Niro is reduced to tears, not just any kind of tears, but those gut-wrenching, sobbing, lower-belly tears that indicate the real release from something grave, something real, something deep, some terrible burden that he has been carrying and struggling with for a long, long time. I reference this scene in this movie because it reminds me of the beautiful story that John's gospel brings to our threshold this morning. Jesus and his disciples are traveling toward a beloved family, probably the closest human beings that they have who are not on the road with their group of traveling teachers and healers. And in the story as we read it, there's a bit of a pregnant pause in Jesus' trip to get back to Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. And in that delay, Lazarus... Jesus' friend, Mary and Martha's brother, dies. They prepare Lazarus' body for burial. They wrap him up in the traditional way that bodies would be prepared for burial. And they entomb him, putting him into a, a rock cave and putting stones in front of the grave so that Lazarus' body would not be disturbed. When Jesus arrives on the scene, Martha and Mary, in their grief, have this moment where they almost scold him. You can hear it in the story, desperate in their grief, but also hopeful. Lord, Lord, where have you been? Had you been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus connects with them in their grief. The story reads that Jesus burst into tears. That Jesus wept at hearing of the death of his friend. This is a beautiful moment in demonstration of empathy in the scriptures. Jesus himself feeling the emotions that Mary and Martha and others. And then we get what we know we get. Jesus enacts this beautiful miracle. Roll away the stone. But the sisters are like, no, 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 no. It's been too long. They don't want to suffer that humiliation of smelling that rotting carcass along with their terrible grief. Don't do that. Jesus insists Lazarus is raised from the dead. And we get this incredibly powerful line from the scriptures Jesus tells the people, unbind him. Let him go. Whether it is the Guarani native to Rodrigo, unbinding him from his terrible past and his terrible darkness, or it is the sisters and friends of Lazarus doing the work of unbinding him from those things that are holding him back, from being fully alive or it is a friend who comes into our own lives and gives us just a little love and nurture and attention that frees us. I believe the wisdom from John's story of Jesus is teaching us that we are the shelter of each other, that there are times When we find ourselves as human beings so bound up, so imprisoned, so entrapped by our failures, our trauma, our pain, that we are unable to liberate ourselves. Even in a country and a culture that supports individualism from the very center of our experience. We must know that there are times, there are circumstances where we are just simply unable to do that liberating work from ourselves. We need the help of a neighbor, a friend, a professional. I preached this sermon at eight o'clock, of course, and one of the things that I left out was some practical guidance of what that looked like. So in between eight and 10, I asked myself, where are those moments in my own life where I have been liberated, freed up by the words or care of another when I'm struggling? And I thought of two moments They're relatively benign. The first was when I was a youngish priest at All Saints Beverly Hills. And I was really struggling with a powerful decision about whether to stay in that place or to leave that place and do something new, experimental, fresh, a little crazy that was likely doomed to fail. And I was just stuck for a period of time, and I reached out to a guy named Billy Gammon. Billy was uh, um, an insurance executive in Austin, and he had kind of taken me under his wing right after I was ordained priest and helped me to see my way through some of the logistics of early ministry. Billy was also one of those um, wonderful people in my life who had encouraged me to do things that I had given up on doing. I came up here to Jackson at one point in, in, during this period of, of time in, in kind of early midlife, and I had a failed attempt at climbing the Grand. I came down from that experience. I looked Cindy in the eye, who was holding Jass on her hip, and I was like, I will never do that ever again. <laughs> no way. I love this place. I love this valley. I want to always come back and visit here, but mountaineering is not for me. And I hung my climbing harness and my helmet on the nail. Billy called me a couple years later and said, Hey, Jimmy, um, we're going to climb the Grand this summer. And I was like, I don't think so, Billy. Um, I'm really flattered that you would call me and want to do that with me. But mountaineering is not for me. And he's like, no, no, we're going to do this. We're going to climb the grand. You know, I've had four failed attempts at climbing the grand. We're going to climb the grand together. And I was like, hey, bud, like you're not hearing me. I'm not going to climb the grand. We're not going to do that together. He's like, yes, you are. We're going to climb the grand. We're going to do it on July 20th. We're going to go with Exum. I know this great guy. We're going to get up there. And I was like, well, okay. I guess I'm climbing the Grand. I guess I'm back in that. When I was at a decision point, we climbed the Grand. Billy and I climbed the Grand together. We got to the top of the Grand. We got to the bottom of the Grand, too. It was a wonderful experience. Getting down was much better than going up. I remember when I was at the threshold of this decision, would I stay at All Saints Beverly Hills or would I try to do this crazy thing that we ended up calling fads? I called Billy and I was like, what do you think, man? You know what he said to me? He said, Jimmy, if you wanna be a sailor, you have to go to sea. And so I did, I left that parish and I started kind of a funky, hippie, rock and roll Episcopal church. And I stayed there for 10 wonderful, excruciatingly hard years until I came to be with you. It was Billy who severed that burden of the decision for me and liberated me to, to um, occupy a space that was less fearful, less scary There was another moment in time that was so similar to that when I was wondering whether I should offer my name for this job. And I called my friend who had recently written a book, and one of the pieces of advice in her book that she gave was like, don't stay small. So I texted her and said, like, I need a little bit of time with you. I need maybe 20 minutes on the phone. Can you give that to me? And she said, yeah, sure. How about Thursday at 10, can we do it then? And I told her of my conundrum. Here I am, I've built this perfect job for me in the Episcopal Church, one that fits me like a glove because I designed every aspect of it, but I feel a little drawn here. And she said to me, she said, you know, Jimmy, as long as I have known you, one of the things that you talk about is your love for the mountains. And that, in that moment, There was this liberating, healing experience that enabled me to step forward out of fear into courage and put my name forward. And here I stand in your midst five years later, full-hearted, knowing that there are at least two jobs that are a perfect fit for me in the Episcopal Church. How many of you read The Secret Life of Bees? Yeah, it's a wonderful tale by Sue Monk, kid. If you remember the protagonist, Lily, in that story, who has suffered an incredibly hard childhood, has this moment where she's capturing bees that are coming into her room from a crack in the wall or the window. I can't quite remember when. Lily puts bees into a mason jar. She drops the petals and pollen from flowers into the bottom of the jar, screws the lid on, and punches holes in the top of the jar so the bees can have air to breathe. Do you remember this part of the story? If you don't, do you remember doing nearly the same thing as a child, capturing some firefly or doodle bug? Doodle, that's what I call roly polies, doodle bugs. For some reason, I don't know. Lots of people call them roly-polies, but I call them doodle bugs, or ant, or locust, or whatever else it was in that jar. What Lily finds is that when she takes the lid off the jar, the bees still don't leave. When Lily turns the jar onto its side, even without a lid, the bees will not fly out of the jar. She comes to understand that in order for the bees to be liberated from the jar, she has to gently shake them out. We have the same experience as human beings. Sometimes we need to be gently and lovingly liberated from the things that are holding us back, from the fears that keep us from stepping forward into courage, into a more beautiful, deep, loving life. I hear John's Jesus, not just calling each of us out into our best healed and liberated lives, but I hear John's Jesus inviting us, begging us, to do that loving work of helping those who are around us, friends, colleagues, neighbors, even from time to time strangers. I hear John's Jesus inviting us to do the loving, healing, nurturing work of liberating humanity into a more beautiful, loving life. Amen.